0: The following talk is from St. Michael's Fulwell, a gospel-centered community for Fulwell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website,
1: stmichaelsfolwell.co.uk.
0: In a moment, uh, we're going to hear from James Bunyan from that passage, and Margaret is going to read it to us first. Uh, the reading this morning can be found on page 1,179 in the church bibles it's philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11 page 1179 in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as christ jesus who being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing and every tongue can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: Amen. Morning, everyone. We are doing well? Very good. Me too. Thanks for asking. We, um, this week, we are looking uh, at the second half of this really stunning poem that we found in Philippians chapter 2. We're taking an opportunity as we come towards Christmas to dig into the kind of reason why we celebrate Christmas every year, and of course... It's the same reason we come to church every week, which is Jesus. And there's this beautiful poem in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. It's great to have your Bibles open if you've got them, and there's a handout coming around. You can make notes. And put simply, the poem comes in two halves. Last week, we thought a little bit about Jesus' humiliation, how he was made low, how he came from heaven and became like a normal human being and then went even further and died on the cross. This week, we're thinking about the exaltation him being made famous, being made glorious, being given honour. And really, in one sense, we're thinking that's just two halves of the one work of Jesus. It's not that one's more important than the other. They're a bit like breathing in and breathing out. One is inevitable once the other one's happened. They go together. A theologian Herman Bavink says this. It's on the screen. The benefits of Christ would never reach us if he had not been raised from the dead... And seated in exaltation at the right hand of God, what would be the advantage of a Lord who died and had not been exalted? At Christmas, we don't remember someone who happened a long time ago and has long since died, but we remember somebody who is alive today, and who even today is with us and giving us all of the benefits that he won for us in His work, which is a brilliant thing. And we need his help now as we look at this passage. This passage, which we're going to do in four words. You'll see them on the handout. There are four words in this passage. They are, therefore, exalted, Lord, everything. Therefore, exalted, Lord, everything. That's where we're going. Let's ask for his help. Father God, thank you so much for the fact that Jesus is always with us. Paul writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so we pray and ask that as a church family, as individuals, we would have the same mindset of Jesus, knowing what He's done for us and being shaped and changed to be more like Him. Amen. Amen. So the first word is therefore. And the passage starts in verse 9 like this Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. So we're going to dig into the exaltation, but we need to notice the therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask, What is the therefore? therefore, and it's saying that because of the reason before, that's why we're saying what we're saying here. In other words, the reason Jesus was exalted, the reason why he was given all glory and all honour is because before that, he humbled himself. He had to go down before he came up again. And actually, that's the shape of Jesus' life. I have now, this it might be a bit complicated. I know not everyone's a mathematician, so you might not be able to follow where I'm going with this. I've actually drawn a graph of the life of Jesus, and it is, it's a tricky one. So if this doesn't help you, then filter it out. But here it is, very complicated graph. Um, this took me hours. Um, you'll see that Jesus at the start of all things, in eternity past, he had all the glory with God the Father. He was one with God the Father. And then he went down, a separation from God the Father. The sin of man and the wrath of God was on Jesus at that point. But then he goes up again. And in his resurrection and his exaltation, he goes up even higher than where he was before. He humbled himself to death in order to serve and save the world. And then God exalted him in turn. And it's actually inevitable that God was going to do this. Because God the Father was delighted with the work of God the Son. It wasn't that the two of them had a different plan from each other... ...they were working in concert. And God the Father delighted in the work of God the Son. You can imagine him almost up in eternity... ...saying, look at my son, look at my boy, look at what he's done. He stepped into history, even though it was difficult. He walked around with humanity, he died on the cross... ...and destroyed sin. He's done so well. And then he rose from the dead. Isn't he brilliant? God the Father is so proud... ...of the work of God the Son... ...that he exalts him. And he vindicated him. We think of the work of uh, exaltation... ...as the kind of resurrection of Jesus... ...and the ascension. In other words, Jesus came up from the grave... ...we'll dig into this a little bit more in a second... ...and then he went up into heaven... And both of those acts were like God's big amen to everything that Jesus did. They're the vindication of Jesus. That everything he said he was going to do, he managed to do. And he's not a liar. This is that guy, Herman Bavink, again. Funny name, because he's Dutch. Uh, the resurrection is the divine reversal of the sentence which the world passed on Jesus. The world said guilty. God the Father said vindicated. And really that's the shape of Jesus' life and ministry, suffering first and glory later. And it's worth saying right at the start of this passage that that is the shape of the Christian life too. If we're Christians then we are following Jesus, someone who suffered first and had glory later. So that means our life looks like him. You might have heard of something called the prosperity gospel. Uh, it's a thing that kind of uh, really originated in the States but has kind of gone around the world largely through satellite TV and especially in the developing world it's kind of very popular. And the prosperity gospel basically teaches that if you become a Christian everything in your life will go smoothly and brilliantly. That you, know, you will always have great health, you will get loads of money, Your teeth will be whiter, your hair will look incredible, and everything that you set your mind to will go well. And if it doesn't go well, it's because you just don't have enough faith. You need to just work a bit harder, and Jesus will bless everything that you do. This is a quote from a well-known prosperity gospel preacher. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he's laid out for us. I actually read a second quote when I was digging around uh, from the LA Times, uh, quoting a different prosperity gospel, who was challenged as to why he drove such an expensive car when he was a pastor, and he said, where in the Bible does it say I should drive a Honda? I remember thinking, Hondas are quite nice. (laughs) Wish I had a Honda. The problem with this, apart from the fact it's complete nonsense, uh, the problem with this is what does that do with Jesus? Jesus was a homeless guy, a traveling preacher, who never had particularly much money, who died a horrendous death because he did what God wanted him to do. In other words, if this is true, then God must hate Jesus. And let's not forget the guy who wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul. He was stoned, shipwrecked, betrayed, hunted, (laughs) rejected. But at the end of his life said, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. I've done exactly what it is that God wants me to do. The actual pattern of a Christian life is suffering now and glory later. Not wealth and riches now, and then it will get even better later. And the reason that's important is partly because of what we talked about last week. The Christian life is a life that is shaped by serving other people. When we say suffering now, we're not necessarily saying that when you become a Christian, everything goes wrong and everything is terrible. That is true for some people. It's not universally true, but it means we must be prepared for that. Because serving other people is messy and is difficult. We might become a Christian and experience rejection from family and friends. Our health might inexplicably take a tumble. There might be all kinds of difficulty. But afterwards, the Bible says, God will exalt. The end of the Christian life, however difficult is followed by walking into heaven with a warm welcome, with applause, with glory. Suffering first, glory later. That's the first word, therefore. The second word is exalted. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where's the highest place you can go? It's at the right hand of God himself, divine. And that's what we believe as Christians, that Jesus was literally, physically brought there. I said before, there's two parts, if you like, to Jesus' being made famous, his exaltation. And that is his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. The truth is that Jesus fully, properly died. The Romans were very good at execution. And they did a number on Jesus. And he was placed in a grave. And for three days, that's where he lay. But three days later, he walked out of that tomb. The only person ever to do so for eternity. Death couldn't hold him. And hundreds of people saw him alive. To such an extent that many of the founders of Christianity went to their graves... ...went to jail, went through all kinds of things... ...saying, I saw him dead and then I saw him alive again. He has, in other words, eternal life. That is just him. He owns it. He was raised. Secondly, his ascension. It can be easy to forget the ascension... ...but the resurrection was the first step on that upward trend... The ascension is the second one because 40 days after he rose from the dead, the Bible says he ascended back into heaven to be at the right hand of God, seated because he's finished his work. And there he directs human history, the unopposable king of all things, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He is the boss. He's been glorified more than before. Now you might be looking at my uh, sophisticated graph, I don't know if we can have it back on the screen, and obviously there's lots of things to follow there, but you might be thinking, why at the end is it more like a tick? Why is it bigger and higher up at the end than it was at the start? Surely at the start Jesus was God. Jesus had all the glory and authority, there is no better than that. Uh, Well it's a good point. And I don't know exactly how it works, other than to say that the Bible teaches that Jesus was perfectly glorious in eternity past. But having passed through the death for all people and the resurrection, he's somehow even more perfect now. It's the glory of not just being God, but of being a God who has one glory for himself in the death and resurrection of his son. Perfection even better now. And now he's got the highest name. In other words, huge amounts of honour and glory. I was thinking a little bit about names this week and thinking, what is the best name you can kind of get for yourself? And obviously, the answer to that is kind of titles, isn't it? Prefixes and suffixes. You can be doctor. That's very impressive. If you're a doctor, then people know you're very clever. Either because you've done doctoring, uh, you've studied you're the world expert in the kind of chemical makeup of one particular alloy, or because uh, you're a real doctor and you know how kind of the body fits together and you can kind of help people, and you can answer the call if anyone says, "Is there a doctor in the room?" Uh, that's a great title. Here's another great title that I found uh, on the internet. This is Sir David Attenborough. Look at all these suffixes. I was going to look them all up for you as due diligence for research for seven, and honestly, I couldn't be bothered. Who's got the time to find out what all of those mean? OM, GCMG, CH, CFO, CBE, FRS, FSA, FRSA, FLS, FZS, FRS, FRSB. One wonders if he's just added a few himself and no one's going to check. When you write to David Attenborough, you know, you have to get quite a big envelope. <laughs> I know this because uh, Lois, when she was at university, did you know that David Attenborough was a local lad? he lives in St. Margaret's and Lois wrote to David Attenborough and asked him to narrate a university play that she was in you've you got to aim high you've got to aim high with these things and I wonder if I mean Lois did you include these titles we don't know well fake news from me I've just been called out I wonder if the reason he didn't reply is because he didn't include all his titles it's not him he's got this big name I then had a lot more fun looking at King Charles. Did you know that King Charles has got an entire Wikipedia page with all of his titles on them? They just go on and on and on. Here are some of my favorites uh, from around the world. In Tanzania, he's got a title that means the helper of the cows. Apparently, it literally means the one the cows love so much that he's the one they call to when they're in distress. Isn't that great? In Saskatchewan, does anyone know what that is? Canada, very good. I had to Google it there. So Saskatchewan, he's got a title that means the sun watches over him in a good way. I like the idea that there's someone the sun watches over in a bad way. In Papua New Guinea, this is my favorite one, he's got a title that means the number one child belonging to Mrs. Queen. It just does what it says on the tin. All of these are glorious names you could have. None of them come close to the name Jesus. Jesus is the highest name. More glorious, more honourable than any other name. So much so that two things should happen when we hear the name Jesus. First of all, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And secondly, verse 11, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Two things going on there. First of all, every knee should bow. That's the kind of thing you do for a king. Is to show deference, to say, look, this is someone who is in charge and can tell me what to do. And it says every person, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. In other words, everyone living and dead, rich or poor, important or unimportant, educated, rich or poor, high and mighty, everyone should bow the knee and acknowledge that Jesus is king. In other words, everyone should do as he says. Secondly, all people should speak of him as king and testify. In other words, bringing those two things together, you've got in actions and in words, everyone should revere him. Now, in this passage, you and I know that the word should is doing quite a lot of heavy lifting, Every knee should bow, and every tongue should acknowledge Jesus Christ. Because when you walk out of this building, and you walk around in London, often it feels like at the name of Jesus, everyone carries on as usual. And the only time we hear his name is when it's being used as a swear word. He's an irrelevance. The Bible would say that that is a travesty. That actually, the Bible would go as far to say that not being a Christian is not a morally neutral thing. It's actually a bad thing. Because Jesus died for the sin of the world and he was risen and exalted at the right hand of God and therefore it's just a fact that everyone should honour him as the rightful king. Everywhere that Jesus is not honoured, every family, every community, every people group, Everywhere is not worshipped, it's actually a travesty. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, second word, exalted. Third word, Lord. And we just want to dwell on this phrase that you see in the middle of verse 11. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And the reason it's worth digging into that phrase is because In the New Testament, and especially when Paul the Apostle writes, he's the guy who wrote this part of the Bible, the phrase Jesus Christ is Lord is like a shorthand for the entire Christian message. Everything you believe about Christianity goes into that phrase. Sometimes you say it's just Jesus is Lord. Sometimes you say it Jesus Christ is Lord. And what that phrase really means is he owns me. The Christian is somebody who says that Jesus owns me me first of all because he made me second of all because he died for my sin thirdly because he rose for my future fourthly because he's king over everything he owns me he calls all of the shots and his word to us for Christians is not optional now that might sound a bit extreme But I think the reality is that all of us are living for something. And actually, I think whatever you make the highest good in your life, fine, if you don't want to make it Jesus, that's your call, but I don't think the alternatives are that great. I had a little think about what the alternatives to Jesus as Lord might be. Here's uh, the first one I came up with. Um, By this I mean self not all of you will have, be tempted to think James Bunyan is Lord. But, I, you know, I would. In fact, here's the second slide, which would be very helpful. Insert certain name here is Lord. We we're tempted to just make ourselves king. Whatever I think is good, whatever I think is right, I'll just do that. There is no law except the law that I speak. And my tongue will confess that I am Lord. Or maybe it's kind of more an abstract concept that you're pursuing. Maybe it's prosperity that you bow the knee to. And you will give everything to become minted. Or maybe there's another one, maybe status, you'll do anything so that people think well of you. Thirdly, don't know, maybe the education of my children is Lord and I will bust a gut. This is the supreme good. Now, the reality is all of these things are good things. The top one's debatable. The re- all of these things are good things. Do you want to give up things for and work towards. The reality is they are dreadful lords. Because if they become the supreme thing in your life, they will take everything from you and they will give you nothing. And the reason why it's good that Jesus is Lord is because he will give you everything and he will sacrifice everything himself. He invites us to serve him, but he served us first And so here's the question, which you may have felt has been coming all the way through this passage, and it is this Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Does your tongue confess him as king? The reality is, it's no good having bowed the knee to Jesus in one aspect of your life. He's a king, it's a package deal. It's no good being honest with some people with your tongue that you're a Christian. It's also no good doing one, not the other. So if your tongue confesses that you're a Christian but you don't actually live your life like him, that's called being a hypocrite. If you don't mind living as a Christian but there's no way you're telling anyone about it, the Bible says that's cowardice. The two come together. Therefore, exalted... Jesus Christ is Lord. But what about us? What about us? As we dig into the fact that Jesus came up from the grave and then went up into heaven, this is great news for us. Because the Bible says we are in him. If we're Christians, then we are so closely identified with Jesus. Imagine being kind of sellotaped to him. Everywhere he goes, you go too. We are in Christ. And that means for us, it may be suffering now, but it will definitely be glory later. It means that if you're a Christian, you are going to live forever. Death is the final enemy that Jesus beat. But he guarantees a future with God forever. I went to a funeral last week, a funeral of a minister in Brentford, And uh, the pastor spoke on this passage. These are actually two different passages, so there should be a, a bit more of a space, my bad, between do you believe this. But these are both quotes of Jesus from a bit of the Bible called John's Gospel. And at one point he looks at a grieving sister and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then later on, speaking to his disciples, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? It's good to read these passages at funerals, they are amazingly comforting. But it's good to read them on a Sunday, too. It's good to read them often for Christians. Some people dismiss Christianity and say, it's not just life insurance for when you die. And I want to say, well, it's definitely more than that, but it's not less than that. We need that. Without this, there kind of isn't anything else. Just an emptiness. But with this, with this regular reminder, we can face the reality of death. Everyone is going to face it sooner or later and some in our church family are facing it sooner rather than later if we know this stuff if we know that it's guaranteed because of Jesus exaltation then we do not let need our hearts to be troubled the resurrection is only good news but interestingly that's not how paul applies it in this passage That's not where Paul goes. Paul goes somewhere a little bit surprising. Last week, verse 3, we had do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Thinking about Jesus' service. This week, we're going the other way, not do nothing, but verse 14 do everything. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. What are those two phrases, grumbling and arguing? Well, they're obviously very similar. They're about the words that you use. I wonder if grumbling is like a private thing. You kind of grumble about people when they're not there. And grumbling, what's at the heart of grumbling? When when you're dissatisfied with what's going on. Really, it's because... You deserve. You think you deserve something more than what you've got. You kind of grumble. I shouldn't be like. I, I shouldn't be stuck in traffic. Do they know who I am? am in my Honda. Uh, or arguing. Arguing is different. It, rather than being private, it's more face to face, isn't it? Arguing is looking at someone and saying, "Look, I know better, and I think you're wrong." And look, it's important to say what this is not saying. <laughs> So, this is not saying, Paul is not writing to a church and saying, you're never allowed to give feedback to people or to kind of uh, do and proper criticism. Um, honestly, if, you, if ever you've got any feedback about church and about how things are going, you've got some criticism that you'd offer, then please, um, Ed and Simon would love to hear that. Uh, drop them an email. Um, their phones are on any time of night, any time of night in the morning. You, just, you wake up in the middle of it, it strikes you. I, I think Ed would like to hear it. Ed would like to hear it, so give him a ring offer of that. Similarly people are allowed to disagree with what the pastors say at the church or what anyone else says in church that is, that is not in question that is not what Paul is saying, rather I wonder if grumbling and kind of arguing in this context are a selfish thing it's about I deserve better I know better it's for tearing other people down not for building up others and I think the reason why Paul goes there is given this whole passage, given this poem, given the glories of Jesus' descent to the grave for us, and then his ascent back into heaven, where he has got the name above every name. We look at all that, and the Christian immediately thinks, Do you know what? It's not about me. It's not about me. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. As I close, I guess it's worth pointing out something relatively obvious, which is, given all of the amazing things that Paul has just said in Philippians chapter two, isn't that application just a bit vanilla, I think? How can you say, Jesus has come back from the dead, so stop grumbling? Surely that's just a bit boring, a bit mundane, That feels very earthy and just every day when we've been talking about the glories of all of that Jesus has achieved. To which I think Paul would say, yes, that's the point. Because this is real life. And what Christianity does is it takes someone absolutely extraordinary and it transforms our ordinary. So that even in the little things in life, we can show people that there is a king who is risen and reigning. Who is over all and who makes basically everything we do a kind of miracle. Why don't I pray? In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Father God, fill our minds with Jesus. Fill our hearts with him. Help us to acknowledge him. To live our lives for him to love him, and thereby to make our lives all about him. I pray for us as we've been digging into this passage that where you want to bring things to us, you would do so. Amen.